You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You're listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics. This is part two, the six seminars held in Dornach, Switzerland, July 31st to August 5th, 1922. This is the first seminar in Dornach, July 31st, 1922. Question. The internal logic of Quote, the social question, close quote, appears to be sound in itself. But the criterion, quote, in accord with reality, close quote, is not to be found in the social question. Rudolf Steiner. It would be, it would really be good if our friends would express themselves a little more clearly on this point. You must consider that the teachings of economics as such are really very recent, scarcely a few hundred years old and that until the great utopians came along, everything in the field of economic life took place more or less instinctively. Nevertheless, these instinctive impulses people had were something that developed into reality. In order to gain a better understanding, just consider the following. What we can think about economic matters really arises from the contradictions of class distinctions but also from the economic ways of working, and so on. I will not even look at here what is most extreme, in the way it is represented by Marx and his followers. But even teachers of economics who relate strongly to the middle classes say that everything really arises from economic fundamentals as if out of automatic necessity. However, when people discuss particular concrete aspects then it is as if the concrete arrangements that were brought into action in order to bring about today's economic life were nothing else than the results of medieval thinking itself, but in relation to various realities. Think what the Roman concept of ownership, a purely legal category, brought about as a system, and what was then created through this concept. One can see that these things were not handled in a scientific way, But one can also see that those legal categories and those thought of as legal economic categories have worked in a formative way. And then came those mercantilists, etc., who were not creative but were theorists. One can say, for example, that the advisors of the Emperor Justinian, who created the Codex of Corpus Juris, were far more creative people than the later teachers of economics. They not only created, in our present sense, a Justinian Codex, but also, in the further course of medieval development, we see the contradictory impulses developing themselves on the basis of what was set down in those laws established by Justinian. So, we have arrived at the present time, where people no longer think creatively in economics, but only as observers. This has its real beginning with Ricardo. Take, for example, the law of diminishing returns 
from crop yield. This is a law that is really correct, but is absolutely not in accord with reality. Because in practice it will always be apparent that when one takes all the factors into account that Ricardo did, and when one correctly follows what he called the law of diminishing returns, when, on the other hand, a technically more intensive management takes place, this law is found to be incorrect. It does not establish its truth in the real world. Let us take something else that is more trivial. Let us take the, quote, ironclad wage law, close quote, of LaSalle. I must admit it seems to me like a kind of scientific frivolity that one still finds this law described as having been overcome, in quotes, because the facts do not prove to be true. This is because the situation is as follows. From LaSalle's kind of thinking, and from the view that work can be paid for, the only correct result is this ironclad wage law. It is logically so strong that one can say it is absolutely correct, when one thinks, as LaSalle must have thought, that no one is interested in giving workers more wages than are needed to just make their subsistence possible. They will, of course, not be given any more. But if they are given less, then the workers will waste away, which must be atoned for by the one paying the wages. There is basically no other way than to admit that the ironclad wage law is theoretically correct. Already within the proletariat itself, the people say the ironclad wage law is wrong, because it is not right that within the last decades the wage has been held at a certain minimum that at the same time is its maximum. Yes, but why is the ironclad wage law of La Salle wrong? If the same conditions had continued in which he had formulated it, I would say the conditions from 1860 to 1870, and if one had continued to operate within a purely liberal philosophy, then the ironclad wage law would have conformed with reality with absolute justification. There was a turning away from the liberal economy, and now the ironclad wage law is continually being improved in that state laws are being enacted that are correcting the reality that would have arisen from that law. So you see that a law can be correct, but not in accord with reality. I know of no one who was a greater thinker than LaSalle, except that he was very one-sided, but he was a very consequential thinker. When one is confronted by a natural law, then one substantiates it, when one is confronted by a social law, one can also substantiate it, but it is valid only as a trend, and one can correct it. Insofar as our economy is based on free competition, and there is still much there that is based only on free competition, the ironclad wage law is valid. But because, under these suppositions, it would be valid, one must make the corrections with the enactment of social laws, with definite hours of work, and so on. If you give business people a completely free hand, then the ironclad wage law is valid. Therefore, in economics, you cannot use the purely deductive method. The inductive method doesn't help at all. This is what Lujo Brentano followed. 
We can merely observe the economic facts, it says, and then we gradually come up with a law. Yes, here we do not arrive at any creative thinking whatsoever. This is the so-called newer economics that claims to be the scientific one. This really wants to be just inductive, but with it we don't get any further. In economics you need a method of characterizing, whereby one seeks to find the concepts by coming from various starting points, holding them together, and letting them culminate as concepts. In that way one arrives at a definite concept. In a certain sense this will probably be one-sided since one can never survey the whole range of the facts but only have a certain sum of experiences. Now go over the phenomena once again with the concept and try to verify it. Then you will see that this is really a modification. So through characterizing you arrive at a concept that you modify as you verify it and then you arrive at a perception of it according to economics. You have to work to arrive at perceptions. I would like now to work out such a perception in the lectures of this course on economics. In my showing you all the things that always enter into the setting of prices. The method of economics is a very inconvenient method because in reality it involves having to put together the concepts from infinitely many factors. You have to work toward economic imaginations. Only with those can you make any progress. If you have them and they approach something, then they modify themselves on their own, whereas with a fixed concept it is not so easy to modify it. You are familiar with the so-called Gresham's Law, bad money drives away good money. If bad, cheaply coined money is circulating somewhere, it supplants the real money that then travels to other countries. This law is also an inductive law. It is a purely experiential law. But this law again is such that one also has to say it is valid only so long as one is not in a position to guarantee the value of the money. In the moment one had the enterprising spirit to be in that position, then the law would be modified. It would not quite die out. There is no economic law that is not valid up to a certain point, but they all become modified. Therefore we need a characterizing method. In natural science we have the inductive method, which at most leads to deductions. But generally the deductions have much less significance in natural science than one thinks. There only the inductions have any real significance. Then you have pure deductions, which one perhaps finds in jurisprudence. If one proceeds inductively there, then one brings something into jurisprudence that destroys it. If you bring the psychological method into jurisprudence, then you dissolve it. Then you have to declare every person innocent. Perhaps these methods could actually be introduced, but that would lead to the undermining of the juridical approach as it exists. It may very well be justified, but then it is jurisprudence no longer. So in economics, you cannot make sense of it with deduction and induction. You could manage with deduction only if it were possible to give general rules from which reality itself would uncover the cases. 
I will refer only to those who want to proceed in a purely deductive way, however, with a principal induction that they place at the very top. Oppenheimer, for example, puts at the very top the story of his land settlement association and deduces from it a whole social order. Well, it was many years ago, and Oppenheimer was also already a settler, and said, quote, Now I have got the capital. Now we will found the modern cultural colony. Close quote. I replied to him, quote, Doctor, we will talk about it when it has failed. Close quote. It had to fail, because it is impossible to establish a small region within the general economic sphere that wants to enjoy its advantages through something else so that it would be a parasite within the whole economic body. Such enterprises are always parasites. They survive until they have devoured enough from the others, then they fail. Therefore, in economics, you can characterize only by entering into the phenomena with your thinking. That is also due to the reason that in economics, one must constantly work into the future on the basis of the past. And in working toward the future, one comes across human individualities with their abilities, so that in economics one can basically do nothing else than to stand on the kiviv, uh, and that is, quote, Q-U-I-V-I-V-E. I think it's kiviv, but I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. End of the side. If one is to take hold of the practical sphere, one must be prepared to constantly modify one's concepts. One is not dealing with pliant material that can be shaped, but with living people. And that is what makes the theory of economics a science of a special kind, because it must be permeated with reality. Theoretically, you will easily be able to understand that. You will think it is very inconvenient to work in the science of economics, but even that I do not want to admit to be true. In certain circumstances, You can gain a great deal when you study the pertinent literature of some field and you compare the various opinions. This is also helpful if you are at the point of wanting to write dissertations, for example. In the theory of economics, there are the most unbelievable definitions. Try once to put together all the definitions of capital from the various textbooks on economics or from the other treatises. Try to put them eight, ten, one behind the other. Just now I recall one of them, quote, Capital is the sum of the produced means of production, close quote. I must confess I don't understand what the adjective is doing there. The opposite, unproduced means of production, one could also imagine what that means, for example, nature, that is the soil, and that is presumably what is meant by that. But of course one is then incapable of justifying how the soil can ever capitalize itself. It does indeed capitalize itself. So one can really not make sense of it. And that is because one has such concepts that one must search for and must then just try to enrich somehow. These things are all too narrow. I say that the people who are within associations will find the right way. I want to count on people, and that is what is relevant to reality. A discussion about the, quote, concept of work would have to be set up in a way so that you would now really discover the concept of work in the sense of economics. This concept must be freed 
from everything that does not create value in work, and indeed in economic values. This has first to be eliminated. In that way, of course, one comes only to a characteristic. And it is this characterizing method that is the important thing. Of course, one must now say this in a methodical way. If you find it difficult to see what conforms to reality in these considerations, then I would like to say that the, what conforms to reality could really be quite easy. You say, quote, the esoteric aspects of the social question, close quote, are logically sound in themselves. They are not at all, neither they nor any of the other things. By this, I am emphasizing that I did not want to speak purely from the economics point of view, but also from the social point of view. The whole style and position taken by these writings is, of course, determined by that so that they cannot be evaluated at all from the pure economics aspect. At the most, that could be done with certain essays on threefolding. But I don't find them logically grounded in themselves at all, because, carefully enough, I gave only guidelines or examples, or really only illustrations. I wanted people to realize what can be accomplished if a man is allowed to manage a production facility only as long as he can himself be there with it after which it must be handed over to whoever will again manage it in person. I can well imagine that what is to be accomplished by this could also be accomplished in another way. I only wanted to give guidelines. I wanted to show that one will find a way to go if one carries out this threefolding in a way that is relevant. If one actually frees the spiritual cultural life as such, if one puts the rights life on a democratic basis and the economic life on a real professional basis that can be taken on by the associations. I am convinced that then the right things will happen in the economic sphere. Question. To what extent is inspiration necessary for understanding economics? Rudolf Steiner. That is how it is meant that when one takes the matter seriously, this inspiration is not so extraordinarily difficult. It is not a matter of finding supra-sensible facts, but of actually making the inspiration effective in the field of economics so that it cannot become particularly difficult. The way in which one defines work would stipulate that I proceed by showing the following. A person can do work without its having any economic value. That is a half-truth. One can strain every nerve through talking without creating any real economic value. I would then demonstrate how work, even when it begins to have economic importance, becomes modified according to its value. Let us assume there is a woodcutter who in performing his work actually creates value, and there is a cotton merchant who has nothing to do with cutting wood but whose work makes him nervous so that every summer he goes up into the mountains where he cuts wood. Now the thing becomes complicated because this merchant could also get plenty of value from the cut wood. He could receive something for it. But you cannot place a value on it in the same way as you can with the woodcutter. Under certain circumstances, you have to assume that if the man does not cut wood in the summer for fourteen days, he will be able to work much less as a cotton merchant in the winter. 
then in view of the decreased work, you have also to take his decreased benefit into consideration. The economic value of the wood cut by the cotton merchant is quite equal to the value of the wood cut by the woodcutter, but the effect on the economy of the work that results from his activity is now considerably different. If the wood cutting has its value for the cotton merchant in that it affects his activity as a merchant, then I must find out if it is also true that when a man goes on an exercise machine and steps from one step to the next, he thereby makes himself thinner. This is an effort for him, but here there is no effect on the economy. That is true, but here I must distinguish whether this person is an entrepreneur or has private means. The former will be more able to create value for the economy. One must gradually work out this matter by way of characterizations, and then when you go ever further and further, you get the direct value of the work and an indirect reflecting value of the work. In this way you arrive at a characteristic of the concept of work. With this you can again go back to the ordinary woodcutter and see what the woodcutting of the cotton merchant signifies in the economic process compared to that of the professional woodcutter. In this way one can let oneself drift along from one step to the next and must everywhere observe how the matter is working. That is what I call being in accord with reality. You must show how work functions in the most varied areas of life. Just like Goethe with the concept of the archetypal plant, of course he had outlined a scheme, but he meant something that is constantly changing. In life, economic concepts must be constantly subject to metamorphosis. That is what I mean. Of course, you will not have much luck with such concepts. The university professors do not consider them valid today. They want to have a definition. But I have not found the concept of work to have been rigorously taken hold of in the teachings of economy. One should characterize, not constantly speak in a negative way. For example, I have found in economic analyses that work cannot be the decisive factor in the price, for the reason that the personal effort of the particular people concerned is different. You certainly find negative instances recorded, but the positive aspect is missing so that one goes on to characterize work in such a way that it really loses its original substantial character and gets its value from other aspects from which it is considered. When one begins to characterize in this way, then the substance is lost. In the end you get something that in every way is part and parcel of the economic structure. Work is then, excuse me, work is that element of economics that originally comes from real human effort but that overflows into the economic process and thereby achieves economic value in the greatest variety of directions. One should speak of processes that lead in the most various directions in the evaluation of work. Inspiration depends on finding out how to advance from one thing to the next. To find just the right examples depends a little bit on the spiritus. Question. But is a primary concept not necessary? Even with the descriptive method, one must surely give weight to the causes that give rise to the observed effects. Rudolf Steiner As far as what concerns the effects, I agree that one must go back to the causes. But, 
as is the case already in certain areas of nature, that one cannot find the causes in a way other than by starting from the effects, so it is even more the case in the area of economics that knowing the causes is of no help if one has not obtained them from the effects. For example, the tremendous effects of the war industry, they are there. If one did not know them as effects, then one could not confirm their cause at all. It is a matter, therefore, of acquiring a certain sense for the quality of the effects in order to be able to determine the causes. Of course, in actual practice, one will have to determine the causes directly, but that depends on what economic theory requires in actual practice. One learns to evaluate the effect and in seeing the side-tracks of the effects, one comes to recognize the causes and then to change them for the better. It does not do much good to learn to know only the causes. One must determine the causes in such a way that one can say, quote, I know them because I started out from their effects. Close quote. Knowledge of tremendous importance, such as that the speech center is in the left brain, was gained entirely from its effect lost speech paralysis. You first know the effect. Only then are you led to investigate the matter. So, therefore, this recurrent method is necessary. Question. I cannot see everything having to do with art, religion, and also sport from an economic point of view. Some part of these one can see from that point of view, but surely not the whole of them. Rudolf Steiner. I am visiting a place and find there extraordinarily artistic buildings. This, of course, is a utopia. This is to be seen not only as something artistic. These artistic buildings are possible only on the basis of a certain economic situation. If I visit a place full of artistic buildings, I will immediately have a picture of how things are managed there. If, on the other hand, I visit a place where even so-called beautiful buildings are lacking in taste, then from that I will get an idea of the economic situation of that particular place. And even if I find only utilitarian kinds of buildings, I will get an idea of the economic situation in that particular place. Where I find artistic buildings, I can conclude that there higher wages are paid than where I do not find any. So I cannot imagine there is anything that cannot be considered economically. Everything, including even the highest spheres, must be considered in its economic aspects. If today an angel came down to the earth, it would either appear merely as a dream, then it would not change anything, or as soon as it appeared to people who are awake, then it would certainly affect the economic life. It could not do otherwise. Objection I admit that one can consider these matters from an economic point of view, but only just able, but one can surely also consider them from other points of view. Rudolf Steiner You are going round in circles. All one can say is this. It is necessary for our consideration to first take the economic point of view as a basis. This is only a heuristic value, a value for research, for investigation. But if you want to find an exhaustive economic theory in accord with reality, you will not be able to avoid characterizing the economic effects from every angle. You will have to characterize 
what influence it has on the economic life of a region, whether it has a hundred excellent painters or only ten. It is otherwise hardly imaginable that the economic life could be fully grasped. Otherwise, I would not have insisted so much on stressing this. Just through stressing it, one always arrives at definitions that in some area are basically not valid or which are extremely forced. It is actually impossible to define the income a man should have by pointing out that he has a claim on what, quote, he himself produces, close quote. This definition exists. The person has a claim on what he himself produces. It seems to be quite nice when one makes such definitions. In certain circumstances it is correct. But a sewer cleaner could not do much with it. The point is that in economics one should not stress one thing out of the whole range of manifestations, but should go through the whole range. One needs to realize that we begin to think in terms of economics because we can then help those who cannot do so. But one must also realize that economic thinking must give rise to the demand that it be quite total in nature, a thinking that is very inclusive. It is much easier to think juristically. Most economists think very juristically. Comment The opinions diverge so far as to what is normal in economics that one does not know at all what is normal. Rudolf Steiner I do not think it is worthwhile to debate about what is understood as normal or abnormal. There is a saying there, there is a saying that there is only one state of health and innumerable illnesses. I do not agree with that. Each person is healthy in his or her own way. People come and say, here is someone with heart problems. He has these little defects. He ought to be cured. I have often said, let people have their little defects. A doctor brought to me a man who was sick. The man had injured the bridge of his nose so badly that one nasal passage was so constricted that he did not get enough air. The doctor said, that has to be operated on. That is an extremely simple operation. I said, forget about the operation. He has a lung that is so constituted that he should not get more air. He is fortunate to have a constricted nasal passage. This way he can live for another ten years. If he had a normal nose, he would quite certainly be dead in three years. I do not therefore make much of normal and not normal. To me, that is most trivial. I often say a normal citizen, a normal citizenness. People will readily understand what I mean by that. Question About the value of statistics Rudolf Steiner It is true that statistics can help a great deal, but today the statistical method is applied in an external way. Someone produces statistics about the increase in value of houses in a certain district and about the increase in another district and then puts them alongside each other. But that is not good. The only safe way is to investigate the conditions as such. Then one will know how to evaluate such numbers. For sometimes a row of numbers can indicate something special simply because an extraordinary event has inserted itself into that row. Question. In putting together numbers, is inspiration also involved? Rudolf Steiner. Inspiration is also involved in that when you have one row a second row, and a third one, and you then find out, once again by inspiration, which facts, when you consider them qualitatively, 
become modified in the first row because of corresponding facts, let us say in the third row, in that way certain number values are perhaps retained. In the historical method I call that the symptomat I call that the symptomatic way of looking at it. One must have the possibility of evaluating matters and eventually correctly weighing the contradictory things against one another. In economic theory, things are sometimes dealt with in a highly objectionable way. One has the feeling that statistics are handled in a way such that, for example, the finance ministers of the various countries establish balances according to a party political excuse me, according to party political points of view in one way or another. And where someone wants to support a particular direction in the party, the numbers can actually support another point of view just as well. There we are really dealing with something of a basic elemental nature. In every science that has to do with human nature, yes, even if you want to name a science that enables you to learn how to treat and to tame animals, your concepts must be capable of modification. And especially so in economics. That is where inspiration comes in. That is what one has to have. Do not be offended if I say it just like that. I am convinced that many of those who are students today would have this inspiration because it is not something so terrible, not floating in nebulous mystical heights, if it had not really been entirely driven out of them at school, already in the prep school and in the public school. As university students today, it is your task to recall what was driven out of you in prep school, to have a living connection with science, which today is pursued in a terribly dead way. Once I happened to speak with a number of professors of economics in another country. They said, when we want to visit our professional colleagues in Germany, they say, yes, do come, but not to my lectures. Come visit me at home. Today one really needs an unprejudiced insight into things. This theory of economics has really lost ground, especially in recent times. It is really all connected with the fact that people have lost the creative element of the spirit. Today people really have to have their nose rubbed into something before they believe in it. One can now read articles in the newspapers about the spiritual blockade in Germany. This has, of course, been developing for some time. If today we want to deliver the periodical titled Das Goetheanum to Germany, then because of its prime cost we have to get 18 marks per copy for it. Think of the technical medical journals. It is impossible to get them. Think of the cultural consequences. That is also a question of economics. Germany has a spiritual blockade. The withdrawal of these periodicals led directly to the result of making people stupid. In Germany this has become an economic character. In Russia it has already taken on a state character. There you can no longer read anything that is not supplied by the Soviet government itself. The people develop into a pure stereotype of the Soviet system. At the most, one can smuggle in a book now and then. Question. Would it be more useful, in observing the effects of economics, not to consider the statistics in the first place, but to observe the facts with which we are confronted? Rudolf Steiner. One needs to do this, even when one goes to statistics for advice. One can prove these things only numerically with statistics. Clearly. If one now goes to Vienna, one needs only to walk through the streets to gather experiences. 
You need only to consider in what apartments your acquaintances lived ten years ago and where they live now. And so it goes, piece by piece. You can make such observations of the most awful kind. You can go and see for yourself that a whole middle layer has been wiped out, which basically only still survives, yes, because it has not yet died. It does not live in an economic sense, because one can see from what it lives on, and that is terrible. You can start out from that, but you may still feel the numbers needed for proof to be extraordinarily important. You must have a, in quotes, good nose for these things, because when you can prove things numerically, then the numbers get you a little bit further again. For example, the devaluation of the Krone in Austria. It is really ridiculous how little it means today, but something cannot decrease in value without something being taken away from something else. If you now look for the victims of the exchange rate of the currency, then they are to be found among those whose incomes have declined in value. Here one can do the calculations, and the remarkable thing is that the calculation may no no longer be correct for Austria, let alone for Russia. Austria should have the right, since all other efforts are exhausted, to devalue the Krone even more, and still it does not declare the state to be bankrupt. Of course this can be achieved only through the sanctions that have somehow been brought about. As soon as these sanctions are lifted, people will have to adopt quite different measures. Question. As long as there is wealth, can the state forcibly take this wealth by issuing more money? Rudolf Steiner. Certainly the state can exist by issuing more money. But when the point has been reached where the income has been used up if it is not artificially maintained, then the state could really not exist anymore in an economic sense even if it produces more banknotes. Because further fabrication of banknotes must lead to where every redoubling would lead to an increase, into infinity, the state must step back ever more and more. Question. Does the state not itself live off the economic capital that is invested in the businesses? Rudolf Steiner. Yes, but from what is income in them? Yes, but from what is income in them? Question. Yes, I presume that it sucks up the capital. The capital is diminished? Rudolf Steiner. Insofar as it has the character of income. Because if the state sucks it up, then it has this character. The state certainly can remain alive, but can no longer do business. That is no longer a business. It can live only from what has already been done. It lives only off the past. The income is totally used up. In Austria, the point must have been reached long ago when the income dried up. In Germany, things have not yet gone so far, by a long way. It is quite certain that things could not continue in Austria if it were not for certain mandatory laws concerning rents, for example. There you really pay nothing, about 25 centimes for a three-room apartment, I believe. Only in that way can the situation be maintained, that certain things are free. In Germany it is also the case that one pays perhaps only one-tenth of one's income for an apartment. In a certain class of society that can generally pay up to a point, things can be maintained. In Austria, a certain class of society has fallen so far that they cannot pay even the 25 centimes anymore. People who used to have an income of, say, 3,000 kroner 
could under certain circumstances live from that. Today that is a little more than an English shilling. One cannot live on that. Today economic developments are actually so awful that people now ought to realize that one should really study the laws of economics and in such a way that it would be of practical help. This attempt failed in 1919. At that time the currency crisis was not yet as great as it is today. We could address the question of what economic thinking means and then how does one arrive at a concept of work in an economic sense? And then it would be good if some people would also continue to work with the concepts that I have already used, quite freely and in their own way. It would also be good if someone would try to work out the concept of business capital. What is pure business capital? If one wants to characterize business capital according to its concept, one must accurately contrast it with mere income capital. The end of Seminar 1